Good evening. Perhaps no more famous scripture on God's sovereignty and providence is than what we just read in Genesis 50, how Joseph talks about his brothers having an evil desire and will for sending him to prison, but God meant it for good. Well, in the Lord's sovereignty, even with my attempts of something for good to come with a sermon, he has ordained that this is our message, this is our text tonight on this Easter day. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. Out of reverence for God's word, would you stand? This is the word of the Lord uh, given for your special hearing and attention. Galatians 5 verses 1 through 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it in such and be seated. What is hope? What do you hope for? And who or what do you hope in? In casual conversation, we use the term hope somewhat flippantly. We hope that we might have good weather this week. We hope that our favorite sports team might make the playoffs. We hope that this week we might get to relax, spend time with family, go to the golf course. We hope that we might get to go to Legoland this year for a fun trip. To all of these things and desires to which we could add many more, we can appropriately attach the language and longing of hope. In itself, it's not wrong for us to want good weather. Uh, for our team to make the playoffs, to relax with family or in activity, or to have a fun trip to a theme park. Yet all of these things, with the many others which could be added, the issue is that they are contingent and in many ways out of our control. We can hope for something, but ultimately we don't have control over whether or not that comes about. All of this depends on the consequences, the contingencies, and the inconsistencies of this life under the sun. But this concept of hope 
based on our desires and dreams, but dependent on contingencies and circumstances, it's contra to the biblical understanding of hope, or elpis, as it's called in the Greek in the New Testament. In our culture, we use the language of hope to communicate a desire or a wish which is out of our control and which is ultimately uncertain. But in the Bible, the language of hope is used for the belief in something that is certain, which is based not in uncertainties, but in the unchangeable purposes and promises of God. The hope which the Bible talks about is based in faith. That's why we have that famous saying in Hebrews 11, verse 1, that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As Christians, we have many hopes and desires. We hope for redemption from sin and misery. We hope for forgiveness and acceptance. We hope for joy and relief. All of these desires are innate to our condition as sinners in need of salvation and sanctification. We desire and hope to be made whole and to have a homeland. All of this can be boiled down to and summarized in our hope for righteousness. This longing and desire, all of this hope is talked about by Paul in our passage of Galatians today, wherein Paul talks about the Christian hope of righteousness. In this passage, Paul tells us about the hope which Christians have, a hope which is not based on mere whims and desires and longings such as our world has, but a hope which is secured for us by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, Paul holds out for us the hope of righteousness, which is ours in Christ, which is guaranteed to all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and rest in Him by faith. To understand this, we have a really simple outline today. We'll be looking at two headings. First, righteousness, verses 1 through 6. And second, and finally, we'll look at ritual, verses 7 through 12. Let's look at that first point together, righteousness. At the end of chapter 4, Paul has made an effective argument based on the Abrahamic narrative of Genesis, as we talked about in our last sermon. He has argued that the present Jerusalem and those who are under its persuasion, who are denying the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and are relying on further things such as circumcision and obedience to the law, these are slave children of the slave woman Hagar. In contrast, those who have the faith of Father Abraham, those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, these are children of the heavenly Jerusalem, of Sarah. This is talking about Christians who are resting only and always in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are spiritually free. From this standpoint, Paul states what can be seen in this text as a thesis statement to this entire letter. He's now summarizing all that he has been building up to. So he states in verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
That opening statement can be translated more bluntly or redundantly even. For freedom, Christ has freed us. Note that Paul is again using the inclusive pronoun us. Christ has freed Jews and Gentiles. Christ has freed Paul and the Galatians for freedom. Notice also the the connection between the indicative reality of Christ setting us free from sin and slavery and how closely this is followed by the imperative, necessity. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, the, the objective fact of God freeing us from slavery to sin and misery in Christ Jesus is necessarily followed by the imperative, the subjective response that we must stand firm in the freedom which we have in Christ and live out this freedom in Christ. Pay attention here that Paul says to the Galatians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is this yoke of slavery which they again might submit themselves to? Remember that a yoke is that thing that goes on the the neck of an oxen so they can pull a wagon or a big load. It's an imagery of a slavish position and being subjected. Recall also that these are Gentile Galatian believers to whom Paul is talking. The slavery to which they were formerly yoked was that of paganism, imprisonment to what Paul has called the elementary principles of the world, in the worship of things which he said were by nature not gods. But as he's done earlier, Paul links their former life in paganism with submitting to the yoke of the law, an abstraction from its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Now that Christ has come, And he has fulfilled all that the law commands. And these false teachers are trying to bring the Galatians to reject the sufficiency of Christ and his fulfillment of the law. So they're abstracting the law from its entire purpose, which was Christ. And in doing this, they are, in effect, entering back into pagan worship. Because when you abstract the law and all of its commandments and all of its promises from the person and work of Christ you are again serving the elementary principles of the world. You are serving the creature and not the creator because you're ignoring the entire intent which the creator had in giving you the law and all of its promises. So Paul says in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Here Paul the Apostle makes this both a a formal and a personal address. He says, look, I, Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, your father in the faith, the very one who, as it were, birthed you unto faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am speaking to you both as a friend but also as an ambassador of God in Christ by the Spirit. It is I who you know, who is speaking to you. But as an ambassador and as a friend, this is what he has to say to them. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage, no benefit to you. 
All throughout this letter, Paul has talked about extensively circumcision, and he's talked about the person and work of Christ. He has shown that the significance of circumcision and the purpose of the law has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All along, it has been implied that the Galatians were under a certain pressure from false teachers, and that they were on the cusp of becoming circumcised in an attempt of fulfilling God's law. That's what Paul means when he says, if you accept circumcision, if you try to apply it to yourself in order to gain a righteous standing before God, which is apart from and outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in 5.2 though, all that was implied in the former chapters Paul makes explicit, and he explicitly states that the Galatians are considering this, and he tells them what will be the consequences of this. The result of their action, if they try to add on a further human work to supplement, as if it needed supplementation, Christ's work on the cross, Christ's work in our stead. Paul tells them that if you do this, you are in effect rejecting Christ and he'll be of no benefit to you because you are showing that you do not have belief, you do not have faith in the sufficiency of his person and work. And Paul doubles down on this using the language of an ambassador of Christ and a prophet of God saying in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This language of testify or or bear witness, it's a serious prophetic language. Paul was not speaking on behalf of his self or his own beliefs or his own personal opinions or preferences, but as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the apostle to the Gentiles, he is telling them what is true. He's telling them that this course of action which they're taking is foolish, and it can only lead to their disadvantage to accept circumcision as an add-on or addition to the provision provided in Christ is to make the grace of God in Christ to be of no effect. To help them understand why this is the case, Paul fleshes out the implication of these actions. The practice of circumcision itself cannot be abstracted from the law as a whole. To submit oneself to circumcision is, in fact, to obligate yourself to keep the entirety of the law in all of its fullness. James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, explains this logic in negative terms. You remember in James 2.10, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You see, the the law of God was never given to be taken and received in a piecemeal form, picking and choosing obedience to this and that command. No, that's not how God's law works. The law of God is one, reflecting the character and the nature of the Lord himself. So scripture says in the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. In terms of God's law, in terms of finding and establishing a right standing before God, the obligation of God's law is clear, perfect, 
and perpetual obedience. That's what it requires. To to earn a righteousness before God, it requires us to have a perfect and perpetual obedience. So for the Galatians to try to take up one aspect of the law, circumcision, as a means to gain favor with the Lord, they are in effect taking up the obligation of keeping the entirety of the law, the fullness of God's law and all of its wholeness. Which from the perspective of sinful human beings, which all of us are, which every creature is after Adam, this is impossible. That is why Paul goes on to say in verse 4, You were severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now here I want to be clear, Paul is using very stark and stern terms. He's not actually saying that the Galatians have, in fact, been separated from Christ and fallen from a position of grace. In verse 10, he's going to make it very clear that he actually does not think that is the case with them. He has much better hope for them. But in this verse, Paul is entering into their worldview. He's entering into their argument, and he's bringing it to its logical conclusions. The logic of their current position and seeing their circumstances as circumcision as a necessary add-on to Christ. From this perspective, he wants them to know, in no unclear terms, that if they seek to fulfill one aspect of the law in addition to Christ, then they are rejecting his work on their behalf, and they are therefore obligated to keep the entirety of the law. That is what he means when he talks about falling from grace. It's from their perspective and logic of seeking to establish their own righteousness. In effect, he's saying, if they are not willing to accept Christ's fulfillment of one aspect of the law, namely the requirement of circumcision, then they are not trusting in Christ's full fulfillment of the law and all of its wholeness. Therefore, in verses 5-6, through he explains why they need to reject this position of what can only be called a denial and unbelief in the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ and the efficient work of God's Holy Spirit. So Paul states, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In this verse, Paul contradicts a false understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This misunderstanding goes back to the earliest days of the gospel. In a parallel passage of sorts, Romans 3.8, Paul addresses the same issue. He has heard rumors of what some people say about his teaching. So Paul says, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Here Paul identifies the false charge which has been made about his teaching, that if you're justified in Christ freely, apart from your works, then why don't you just sin, that grace may abound more? And Paul says, may genoita, may that never be. That is not what my teaching is, and that is not the teaching of justification by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says that this is a slander, and that it deserves condemnation. 
Similarly, in our passage of Galatians, Paul articulates the true doctrine of justification and its connection with good works. While holding to the fact that our justification, our our righteousness, our righteous standing before God is full and free and is received only and always by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, through the power of the Spirit alone. Yet, there's more to talk about. Because those who are justified by Christ, those who are engrafted into Christ, are also conformed to the image of Christ and have the power of the resurrected Christ and His Spirit working within them. And Paul goes on to talk about that sort of righteousness in this text. He talks extensively about the imputed righteousness, that which God gives to us, which is Christ. But here he's also talking about the hope of righteousness which Christians have. By faith, we have that imputed righteousness of Christ. And by faith, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is also working righteousness in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. And we have that hope of that day when Christ returns and He frees us from our sin and misery and He fully and completely sanctifies us even as is talked about in Romans 8. Moreover, this future hoped-for righteousness, it comes to expression, though, even in our present experience through the power of the Holy Spirit, albeit in weak and beggarly form as we are weighed down by the flesh. He uses our faith to bring about works of love. So it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision or any human effort or work which manifests righteousness, but only the power of the Spirit working believers to make them express their faith through acts of love. In God's plan and purpose, He brings about the true fulfillment of the law, which, as our Lord and Savior has summarized, is love of God and love of neighbor. This is what Paul's getting at when he's talking about faith working through love by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit writes the law on our hearts and brings about the actuality of it. He circumcises our hearts. In these verses, we come to a pivotal point with Paul's purpose and plan in the letter to the Galatians. In this text, Paul presses home a fundamental principle regarding the law. It's not acceptable to pick and choose between this or that aspect of the law. It cannot be taken, received, and obeyed in a piecemeal format. Rather, as Martin Luther puts it, the law is a complete package. You cannot take one part of it and ignore the rest, even though we are so prone to do this. In seeking to submit to circumcision, the Galatians were inadvertently obligating themselves to submit to the wholeness of the law. And as such, they were separating themselves from Christ, from the perfection of His person and His work. This negative aspect of this passage comes home to all of us, no doubt. If we are trusting in Christ in part, but also in our own works or righteousness, which we all so suffer to get rid of that lie of the devil that we can earn our standing before the Lord. It's something that Luther will talk about repeatedly, that we need to train ourselves 
Not to think about our life and our righteousness in this way. It's something we constantly have to relearn the ABCs of the gospel to tell us that that is not the case. You cannot earn a righteousness, but it is only and ever in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in so much as we trust in our own person and efforts, we are risking severing ourselves from Christ and falling from grace. Friends, Jesus Christ is not a partial Savior. His person and work cannot be partialed and partitioned. As the reformer Johannes Brenz states, Paul asserts that Christ cannot be divided like this and that. He only benefits us when we embrace him in his fullness. We only benefit from Christ when we embrace him in the fullness of the perfection of his person and works for us and for our salvation. In the book of Galatians broadly, and our passage today more narrowly, Jesus Christ is presented in his fullness and perfection, able and willing to save all those who receive him by faith as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. Let us embrace him and trust in him and the power of his Holy Spirit to work faith through love in us, even as we cling to a hope of perfect and perpetual righteousness which will be given to us on that day when we are glorified, when we behold the face of the Father. To better understand this way of faith, a a righteous running in the way that the Lord would lead us, let us consider our next and last point. We've just considered righteousness. Now let's consider ritual. In the first six verses, Paul has been talking about Christian righteousness. In verse 7, he now transitions into a metaphor of running. So he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is, as you can readily notice, athletic language, metaphorically used to describe the Christian life. This is a common theme in Paul's letters. He'll, He'll refer to the race that we're running, and it's even taken up in other epistles as well. So following his discussion of the righteousness which we have by faith in Christ and the righteousness which is our hope for through the Spirit, Paul now addresses the Galatians' specific situation. In doing so, he depicts the human, or Christian life rather, as an Olympic race of a distance runner. Before, while they were trusting in the power of Christ, while they were resting in the presence of his Spirit to work faith through love, through faith in them, they were running this race well. But something has now happened. So Paul asks, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. Who hindered you? This language of hinder, it conveys the idea of cutting in on a lane. The images of someone setting up an obstacle in order to sabotage a runner's progression. Paul indicates that there is someone among the Galatians who has sabotaged their running of this race, who has set up an obstacle which is causing them to trip. Someone is hindering them from obeying the truth of the gospel. From this analogy, which is alluded to the presence and persuasion of the false teachers among the Galatians, those who are hindering them, Paul goes on to directly address the situation. He says in verses 8 through 9, 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In verse 8, Paul talks about this persuasion. He does not explicitly state what this persuasion is, but in the context we can infer that he's talking about the persuasion which the false teachers are working among them, that circumcision and law obedience, subservience, is necessary in addition to faith in Christ. That's the persuasion which they have. But Paul states that this persuasion, which comes from the false teachers, it's not from him who calls you. And this goes back to chapter 1. In Galatians 1.6, Paul lamented that the Galatians were so quickly deserting him who called them in his grace, in the grace of Christ, and that they were now turning to a different gospel. Now, four chapters later, he's returning to that idea of the one who called them, and he's saying that the one who initially called you, he is not the one who is bringing this persuasion to you. He is not the one that is telling you that circumcision and obedience to the law is necessary. You have troublemakers. You have those who are seeking to hinder your progress in the gospel. This is not from the gracious God who has called you from darkness to light. Here Paul utilizes the the metaphor of leaven, saying that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's a metaphor from Scripture. We don't really use the language of leaven anymore. Leaven is yeast. Uh, To make the metaphor contemporary, we might say that a sourdough starter ferments the entire batch of dough. And it just takes a little bit. And I don't know much about baking, but I think that was accurate. I do watch the British Baking Show, but that's about it. Paul is saying that it just takes a small amount, a small factor, a small section, a small amount of false teachers to corrupt the entire Christian community. And that's exactly what is happening there. This metaphor of leaven, it's not unique to Paul. We can think about Jesus' teaching when he warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. This was his way of warning and referring to the danger of the false teaching and the false practices of the scribes and Pharisees. Here Paul is doing the very same thing regarding the false teachers in Galatia. Having given his warning, Paul now turns to the Galatians and he expresses his confidence that I mentioned earlier. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. Despite his harsh language and dire warnings, or perhaps we should say because of his harsh language and dire warnings as a means of grace to them, Paul has confidence that they will not give in to these persuasions and persuasive arguments of the false teachers, but that they will be of the same mind as Paul himself as he's expressing himself in this letter. Notice, though, that Paul does not merely say that he has confidence in them, that they're going to do the right thing. No. But that he has confidence in the Lord regarding them. 
In other words, Paul is confident, not so much in the Galatians and their stability in themselves, but in the power of the Lord and his faithfulness to bring them through to the end, despite these trying circumstances, despite their lack of faith, and despite their own efforts to establish a righteousness. The one who has called them is faithful. He will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his confidence, his confidence is that the Galatians will agree with and be obedient to his letter and not the arguments of the one who Paul says is troubling them. It's interesting. He, he puts this in the singular as there is this singular troubler among them present and active. It could be referring to a group in the singular, but it also might be specifying a certain leader that the Galatians would have known of who was contradicting Paul's teaching. In either case, Paul highlights that this one who is seeking to trouble them, who is hindering them in their progression of the gospel, he is confident that this one will receive a just punishment, a condemnation, on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul does not care about status of person. He does not care about circumcised or uncircumcised, male or female, slave or free. Whoever he is, his doctrine is contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's leading the people astray from the gospel. And he will bear his due penalty on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's point. Even as he said earlier, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. And the same he is calling down on this person here. In verse 11, Paul pivots, saying, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. At first glance, this seems like an odd aside or insertion into Paul's argument and appeal. What prompts this question about whether or not Paul still preaches circumcision and why he is still being persecuted? Well, it seems the best we can tell from this is that the false teachers are calling out Paul and telling the Galatians that he's actually inconsistent with his teaching. Actually, he has this principle, his ministerial principle, that he becomes all things to all people. It didn't happen yet, but maybe in another case, Timothy will be circumcised. Is Paul inconsistent? Maybe he actually preaches circumcision and he just didn't tell you the full truth. And he gave you a watered-down version of the gospel. Paul is addressing, it seems, a direct charge against him of inconsistency in his teaching. To this charge, Paul responds by saying that the fact of his still being persecuted by the hands of the Jews. Recall, as we talked about, the thing that actually led Paul to minister among the Galatians at first, as best we can tell, was when he was stoned by the Jews in that region and he was not able to travel because of his injuries. So he labored among them with bodily injury and they bore with his weakness. So the Galatians know full well that Paul suffers at the hands of the Jews because he does not preach circumcision. 
He preaches that Christ is the righteousness, the power, the wisdom of God to all those who believe, Jews and Gentiles, males and free, males and females, slaves and free. And that is why Paul was stoned. That was why he was beaten. That was why he was hated by his fellow countrymen. The cause of Paul's persecution is that he preaches Gentile inclusion into God's covenant regardless of law observance. This is what constitutes what Paul calls here the offense of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive in that it says that everyone, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, all of us stand on equal ground as sinners in need of God's grace. The necessity of the cross testifies to our great need of a Savior. This is the stumbling block to the Jews, which the gospel represents. They too, with the Gentiles, are sinners in need of God's free grace. Following this charge Paul against Paul, he ends this section with a somewhat vitriolic statement in verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is a hypothetical and, in a sense, sarcastic statement made by Paul for good rhetorical effect. He's referring to the false teachers in Galatia as those who unsettle them, who disrupt them. They are unsettling them by teaching the Galatians that their salvation is in jeopardy, that they must be circumcised in order to be full members of the community of God's people, of the, the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of God. They needed to undergo these certain rituals. Paul says that those who want you to be circumcised so bad, I wish that they would go the full way and emasculate or castrate themselves. Make no mistake, this is harsh language spoken by Paul in the frustration of seeing his children of the faith being led away from the faith. Yet I think St. Jerome states it well when he states, What Paul said, what he said, is not so much words of fury directed against enemies as words of love directed at God's churches. Jerome describes Paul's feeling as apostolic grief, or the grief of a father. Paul is in grief over the spiritual state of his children in the faith, and he is angered by the influence which is being exerted on them. The word translated as emasculate here is literally just cut off. But in the context of Galatians, with its focus on circumcision, emasculate or castrate is an appropriate and good translation. This is the same word which the Greek translation, the Septuagint, actually uses of Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 1. There God speaks through Moses, his servant, regarding how eunuchs and those who are castrated would not be allowed to enter the assembly, the ecclesia of God, the church of God. Paul may be alluding purposely to this passage And in so doing, saying that he wishes that the false teachers would be forbidden to enter the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of God, and so they would not have this terrible gangrenous influence on them. 
In their false teaching, these men were substituting ritual for righteousness. They did not accept that the righteousness which Christ provides is free and full and total, but argued that rituals must be added, that circumcision was still necessary. Here, Paul is telling the Galatians that formerly, as they were resting in Christ, as they were trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were running righteously. They were running the righteous race of faith. They were trusting in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them and the empowering presence of God's Spirit, working faith through love among them. But as they were running this race, somebody cut in their lane and has now put a hindrance in it. There is now an obstacle in their way. In our day, many false teachers stand in our way, telling us that something more than Christ and Him crucified is necessary for our salvation and satisfaction. But all of these forms of false teaching share one quality. They are ashamed of the offense of the cross. The cross which proclaims that all of us humans are sinners, completely helpless and in need of God's free grace and mercy. This is the message which Paul is preserving, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and his salvation is full and free. To end where we began, I ask you, what is your hope? What, in what or whom are you hoping? All of us have dreams and desires. It's not wrong to have aspirations in this life and to seek to enjoy the good things which God has given us in His creation, all the loves and longings and passions which that entails. It's not wrong. But none of these things will give to us an ultimate satisfaction. Money, jobs, relationships, retirement, and many more things of which we hope and long seem to offer to us the fulfillment of our hopes and desires. But all of them ultimately fail to meet the true desire of all of our hearts. The true longing of our heart is to be set right. The true longing of our life is to be declared and made righteous. To be known and loved. There is no peace in the world and no peace in our hearts apart from righteousness. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, God offers free and full righteousness to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But more than this, even as you continue to struggle with the flesh, God offers to you the hope of righteousness. That by faith and through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, The faith which you have now, which brings the righteousness of Christ to you proleptically by faith that is accounted to you, one day he is going to make you match that, actually. That's the hope that we have. A hope of our hearts set right, our disordered loves ordered, and our focus on God and eternity. Loving and being loved. Faith working through love. That is the hope of righteousness And that is the hope which we have this day. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
your word is a light unto our feet, a guide in our path. It breaks down and it builds up. There are sweet and gentle words and there are harsh words and we need all of them. So we thank you for them. We thank you for the pastoral spirit that you gave to Paul that he could speak these harsh words to his beloved congregation. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from it. That you would cause us to cast away all efforts of setting our own status through our own efforts and works. Please turn us away from seeking to find satisfaction away from righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would use this text to give us hope. A hope that is founded in Christ, which is built up through faith, which is worked out through love, and which is on the righteousness which you promise to us, which you account to us and impute to us, and which you even work in us. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more like Christ. And we even pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that this work would come about soon, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things trusting in you. Amen.